Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is the marketing director of The Hustle, Scott Nixon. The Hustle was acquired by HubSpot in 2021. Before the acquisition, Scott served as a head of product and growth, where he grew the daily email newsletter 50% year-over-year to 1.5 million readers and premium subscription 500% year-over-year to 10,000-plus paid subscribers. Prior to this, he developed a premium subscription for TechCrunch, led user acquisition at Surfline, and established an internal media buying department at Propel Media. He enjoys building products that people love and developing full funnel marketing strategies. So Scott, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Yeah, you've got a pretty interesting career. I'm, I'm first off kind of interested when I was reading your bio earlier, why would you have leapt from you know such a strong um, business like TechCrunch and leapt over to you know this, I guess at the time, a smaller, very entrepreneurial probably reasonably unknown um the hustle like what what did what made the jump yeah great question i've always been attracted to kind of the high risk high reward opportunities in my career um that started after my role with surfline uh, i was a part of an early stage startup uh, where we raised a million bucks and uh, spent a year bringing that product to life and um it's still alive but it but it didn't quite get to the level we had hoped um, so I was looking for that next chance. Um, I was looking for the next opportunity to, to kind of dive in and lean into my natural experiences and uh, and just see how it would work. So when Sam reached out, uh, the timing was quite perfect. Uh, I really enjoyed my time at TechCrunch, to be quite honest. Uh, it was a difficult decision, um, but the, the product had gotten to a point where it was really up to the writers and editorial staff to kind of bring it to that next level um, from a product and growth perspective uh, was in a really good position. So those conversations with Sam uh, ended with a, a 32 ounce steak. The two of us chatting about, uh, you know, kind of geeking out over some conversion rate statistics that he had uh, put together for his uh, premium product and, and testing different price points. Um, and it just got my early stage uh, blood boiling. So, yeah, the 32 ounce with a tomahawk will kind of get that'll that'll <laughs> kind of pique anybody's interest. Also, drags on the dinner nicely. That um, <laughs> exactly. I was at a friend's place, a former client of mine in Montreal last week, dropping my son off at university and he cooked up five tomahawk steaks for the guests. And I was like, Dude, this is obscene and beautiful at the same time. How did you, how did you meet Sam? Where did you guys connect? Yeah. So it was a cold outreach on his, on his side. Uh, you know, if, if you don't know, Sam uh, has a history of sort of being a cold email expert. Um, we actually sold a course um, to generate extra revenue uh, prior to the acquisition by HubSpot. So, uh, but he's led courses. It's, it's sort of one of his uh, one of his kind of areas of expertise. So that was a really cool way to kind of have that introduction be made was by cold outreach, and it it was not necessarily from from my end to his, but vice versa, which was pretty uh, which was pretty uh, flattering, to be quite honest. And and what was it about the cold outreach that intrigued you then? Was it just that entrepreneurial environment? Because you hadn't yet had the dinner. You hadn't yet talked to him. What was it that made you say, sure, let's at least chat? Yeah, great question. Uh, so I was actually a subscriber of The Hustle. I was following closely when I kind of found myself uh, as a performance marketing background uh, and subscription marketing background uh, individual 
entering into the media space. Um, I found myself subscribed to The Hustle amongst others. Um, and I hit reply on this email that said, hey, get excited. We're launching something soon. Um, it, here's, here's where you can sign up. Um, so I clicked and followed, went to a landing page, signed up for this beta product. Um, and it's a little product that uh, was called Trends. And, um, and it was really looking for market validation. So I hit reply and I said, hey, this, this is really cool. By the way, you have a, a typo in your, in your uh, header one. So you might want to fix that. Um, but anyways, it was, it was a really cool uh, introduction because I had some context and he had actually replied to me and said, thanks for the feedback. Um, I don't think he ever fixed that typo, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that, I think that was, maybe that was it. I just wanted to just really point out that typo. Um, uh, but no, we, we sat down and, um, I went, went and met up with him in the office and yeah, we really just clicked. I think <clears throat> feeling his excitement as a, as a founder, um, I really, really get energized off of that. Um, for me, it's sort of like, how do I take this and I, how do I package it up and how do I push it down, um, into a, make it into a really great culture and encourage people. So um, it kind of just led from one thing to the next, but being a subscriber was, was really the catalyst. Now going from that kind of a, a jump then from again, and how many, how many employees were at TechCrunch? Um, geez, I would say around a couple hundred? 30 to 30 like to that? 40 total. Well, with contributors, uh, with contributors, I think we're probably closer to 75 to hundred. That's my guess. Um, okay. you know, we, but we were a pretty small staff actually it's in lean. office. Yeah. yeah way, actually, way leaner than I would have anticipated it being. Yeah. Yeah. About, I think there was about 10 sales, uh, and, op- and operations folks. We had, uh, four to five folks on the growth and audience development side. Um, I think we had three to five engineers including a head of product. Um, and, uh, and then most of the writers were offsite. So it's hard to quantify, to be honest, uh, just because of that, just because of that, but we did have folks that would come in, but, um, but yeah, it's pretty lean, actually. You'd be surprised. I think a lot of the the contributors play a big role in kind of building up this brand personality and making it, you know, feel really big. Yeah. Were there lessons, do you think you pulled from that? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, it was really fascinating. I mean, within the first, I think, six weeks, um, I learned that the head of product was going to be heading off to her next um, uh, project in her career. Um, so I found myself sitting in a room with our uh, director of subscriptions um, and our uh, our lead engineer and two other engineers. And we kind of looked at each other and said, all right, who needs to step up where? Um, and so that was a really unique way to kick off uh, everything. Um, so in addition to kind of looking at the, you know, developing the go-to market uh, strategy for, for this premium product, I was also finding myself very instrumental in the way that we were going to implement it, um, the, you know, the software we were going to use and how we were going to implement it into the, to the website. Now, is, is Michael Arrington, was he still involved in TechCrunch? No, so he, he still, yeah, he still does some guests, um, some guest takes, I think, on, you know, Disrupt, things like that. I don't think he's been around in a couple of years, but. Um, but yeah, his, you know, what I learned most about his impact was I found a post, a blog post from, it was his last post that said, you know, we're selling to AOL, um, and the comments were all in there. And, and I think the last piece that I read in there that I remember was saying was like, this isn't my blog, it's your blog. Um, so continue to provide really good feedback, comment, and let us know what you want to hear and, and help guide the direction of this, of this brand and this product. 
um, and, you know, in our editorial direction. So I think they've done a really good job of doing that, to be honest. Um, and, and I think that's something that his spirit kind of lives on in that, in that regard. Yeah. My question there was going to be like the, the kind of cult of leadership that you left one organization where there was that, but if Michael wasn't still there, but then in, in flipping over to the hustle, small company though, like it was how many employees were there when you got into, um, there was, you know, we had, we had about, um, around, I think 20 to 25. So we had already established a sales okay. team in Austin, Texas. So it was fairly mature. Yeah. The hustle was fairly mature, uh, when I came on board, however, it really lacked a, a leadership and a team that, that supported product and growth functions. Um, so that was really the core area that I kind of came in to kind of help build up and lead. Um, so it was like, we were kind of like two out of three portions. We had a really, you know, healthy, um, business operations, um, and we had really healthy, um, advertising revenue. Um, but the area that we kind of lacked, um, was really around, you know, the growth projections and, you know, how do we start to build a diversified marketing plan, things like that. Um, so it really was to a large degree, um, a bit of a, a, a blank canvas, um, in that sense. So, and do you remember what it was like going in for your first kind of 90 days? You know, what, what was it you focused on when you first got there? Yeah. So Sam was actually running point. Uh, Sam Power was actually running point on growth uh, when I started. And um, so when I came in, the first thing I did was just build trust by taking off the, taking those channels off his uh, plate and just really manning those myself and kind of grabbing the steering wheel on those. And, um, and then secondary was, you know, lo- looking at, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking at the trajectory of, of our advertising on Facebook and really the costs inflating things like that um, was a, a bit of a red flag for me. So those first 30 days were key in terms of just shadowing folks, understanding <clears throat> how do we got to where we were at. Um, and then, but most importantly, from a growth perspective, in order to give accurate forecasts to our ad sales team so they can go and sell, um, it required a, a really deep dive into um, how do we build a more diversified media plan? Um, 60 days was going, okay, I need overhead. Um, I'm going to need some headcount on this. Um, and here's the team structure that I see working well. Um, 90 days was first hire um, and also uh, revitalizing our internship program, which was really cool to get help from really talented folks. I mean, you're in the Bay Area. Um, people are really obsessed with the hustle. Um, and so that was a really cool way to kind of get some more excitement into the office, getting some fresh ideas. Uh, but also kind of providing some mentorship in return. Interesting. All right. And then what do you think the secrets were? If you were to give us some of the secrets to the growth success that you guys had or that you led then for the hustle, what would they have been? And what were the, yeah. what, what would you steer people away from? Like, what are we still attached to that maybe we should let go of that used to work that doesn't anymore? Well, I think one of the big areas around is, is knowing when to activate paid, a paid acquisition strategy, right? So that's, that's the first thing, um, you know, most, I feel like most startups, when they get that first, you know, big check, the first thing they want to do is activate paid acquisition. Um, but in reality, the question is, is there an organic side of things? Um, in hindsight, you know, the, the candid answer is like, I think we could have done a better job of prioritizing um, our more in, our organic inbound traffic to try to, to try to really scale that up. Um, but the easy kind of lever is always going to be paid acquisition. So I would say like, you know, one of the things I would have done differently a little bit was to put more resources and really challenge our senior leadership team to think about that um, from a growth perspective and kind of balance those things out because it's just, 
yeah, I mean, you can spend money and you know how to, you know, if it's backing out effectively and you, if you know you're doing it correctly, um, that's great. But at the same time too, it's, if you're, if you're, if you're really lacking a, a strategy around, um, organic inbound, you're, you're missing some low hanging fruit. So what would you tactically like specific tactically things would you have done then to drive more of the organic inbound? Well, so eventually we did put some effort behind it. So this is, uh, Again, when I talk about uh, low low hanging fruit, it, it certainly was. We tasked uh, our second growth intern who came on board. Um, he ended up. Uh, we had a you know our site's built on WordPress, super straightforward. There's a million plugins out there, so we plugged in Yoast SEO. Uh, we worked on that, and we basically set a priority to go through our top three to five hundred stories um, and optimize those stories. And what's awesome is like, it provides a really straightforward recommendation, um, on how to optimize those stories your t- from your title to internal site linking, in uh, in keywords and kind of adding those keywords in there. So those were some really easy strategies that that plugin provides to you. Um, so easy that we could, you know, have a, a navigate, uh, have an intern navigate that for us. Um, and then, that allowed our sort of full-time resources to focus more on the paid acquisition because when you, obviously when you have cash, uh, you know, on the line, you want to make sure that's being spent effectively. Did you leverage press coverage at all? It's one of the things I've always tried to do to drive SEO is more press coverage. Did you guys go after press or did that happen more organically? Was it proactive (laughs) or did it just happen for you? It was proactive. So we, uh, we hired um, our former president. He had a, he had a, a bit of a network in the Austin area. And so we tapped into that. And what we tried to do was really try to have Sam focus his effort on getting on a lot of podcasts, getting on a lot of uh, YouTube channels, um, doing uh, written interviews that can be posted. Um, so those, those were ways that we were able to kind of really leverage that, that CEO, um, that, that excitement around what we're building, um, and then take it and put it in different formats, you know, that people are building in other channels. So, but yeah, that was 100%. Um, but in terms of like the standard press release, uh, we didn't do a lot of those to be candid. We did do one, um, around trends when we launched it. Um, but we really tried to leverage the excitement that Sam brings to the table as much as we could. Yeah. That was where I was going to go next as well is, is this kind of natural energy that he has in this kind of cult leader. Does he like to stay operational or did he quickly hand that off to you and try to get out of the growth and operation side? A little bit of both. I think it was more, if he came in after not sleeping for a night, uh, you know, I was usually the first in the office uh, in our San Francisco office. And, uh, but there were days that he would kind of come in and have really exciting ideas and I would say outside of those ideas, he really did prefer to have um, team leaders or folks like myself um, try to try to operationalize the you know the the underbelly and how do we make this work and um, and that was I think one of the, the the things that I learned very quickly and so we kind of tried to work around everyone's strengths, including um, Sam's and and everyone else's. So that was some of the things that we did was um, try to try to kind of take the operations out of his responsibility. Um, but obviously when it comes to managing the books and things like that and getting his final sign off, those were all things that he was required to do, obviously. But, um, but yeah, we, we really tried to kind of take as much off his plate um, on that side as we could. And you talked about trying to build trust with, with, um, with Sam, how did you try to build trust? Yeah. I mean, look, I think what's, I've worked in a number of, you know, a handful of early stage environments and, sitting down and having a very, uh, you know, real conversation with, you know, not holding anything back is critical. Um, Here are the areas where I see that need, you know, that needs to be improved. 
um, and, and kind of scaling those out from, you know, low, medium, you know, uh, you know, critical priority, um, sitting down and talking about those areas was, was really what helped us kind of uh, build that trust. Um, another thing that worked really well too was, uh, and I really appreciate this was Sam has an inner circle of founders that, you know, he, he really is, keeps in close touch with. And I spoke with a handful of them. And after each call, um, this was about 90 days in, uh, 60, 90 days in, they all kind of gave the green light. So this is your wow. guy. Uh, wow. This is your, this is your guy. Um, so over time, Sam, you know, I think, you know, one day I remember coming in and it was a, it was a bit of a compliment. Uh, our head of finance goes, you know, you weren't here last night, but Sam was walking out the door and said, we need to get 10 more Scots. <laughs> so that's amazing. <laughs> I've actually never heard of that where you start reaching out to their, and was it just to learn more about him or was it to build connections or to let them know about you? What was the purpose of reaching out to his CEO network? Yeah, so he had a sort of this network of founders that were, in some degrees, um, strategic advisors uh, who they had their core competencies as as uh, as founders, whether they've had an exit or not. Um, they, you know, so several of them did. Um, so it was sort of mm. leaning into their insights and strengths and trying to get as much learnings as I could out of it. Um, but it was also a little bit of a, a little bit of a pass or go. Uh, for for this guy as one you know as a core leader as your ops leader on the team, where's your network? Where do you go to connect and learn with your peer group? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I so I have kept in touch with folks. Um, I have a passion for both kind of growth stage uh, businesses and coming in and here's the playbook. Um, here's how we scale fast. Um, and here's how we make people happy. And here's how we reduce the Delta between, um, you know, our percentage to goal and, and our actual goal. Um, so that's like one area, but the other area that I'm always fascinated by is, is early stage. So I've, I've worked on a few side projects in the past. I just kind of found folks through networking. One I actually found through Craigslist, uh, when I moved to California 15 years ago, uh, just happened to look on Craigslist. There was before Angel List and things like that. Um, so I've kept in touch with a lot of those folks. I think uh, when there's an opportunity, and again, um, it's really understanding individual core strengths and, and where they add value. Uh, we like to say, you know, one of the things we've promoted, you know, to kind of promote our, our product trends is, you know, you're, you're only as good as, you know, the two to three folks that you surround yourself with. Um, and I think that's really true. And so being really deliberate and, and intentional about, you know, the, taking up their time and you taking up, they're taking up your time. So making sure it's a two-way street in terms of, of, of that value, but um, it's just touch and base and, and seeing how things are going. Um, so, you know, folks kind of float in and out of the growth, you know, uh, growth stage or established companies back to startups. I think once you get a taste, it's hard to not uh, have interest in kind of going back. So, uh, but yeah, that's really where my core network comes from. It's sort of those two different arenas, uh, which is super valuable depending on, you know, what, what I'm trying to work on. Now I got, I got mildly obsessed with one of your products with the trends um, Facebook group and with the website and, and with, and with them with Sam's podcast that he and um, Sean do with my first million what is it that made the trends community on Facebook so sticky and so um, attractive and, and so engaging? What have you done? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. We always say, um, you know, we just try to describe trends. You know, we always say people come for our premium newsletter, our weekly newsletter, 
um, but they end up staying for the private community. Yeah. Um, and, and what's community, really, and the community, yeah, sorry, the community isn't like, I, I went in expecting, okay, well, the community is all of my peers and it's not, it's like, it's like big CEOs down to like frontline. This is my first job as a digital manager, but like, it's almost like everybody's equal and there to engage. It's really intriguing. Yeah. And, and that's, what's really fun is like, I think, Sam has always done a really good job of calling out folks, um, in, you know, as an introduction post. Um, so any intriguing figures that are coming in, <clears throat> Brian Halligan, around our acquisition time, for example, uh, we've had, you know, we basically try to leverage those as posts and try to call out attention to it. And what we found is they want to engage with people. Um, they want to talk to folks. They know this is a super intriguing group. Uh, of people within this within this private Facebook group, um, and so they want to add some value. They want to learn from people themselves. Um, again, everything should be a two way street. Um, so that's some of, that's some of the things um, that we've seen. Um, another area, you know, it's really just by uh, our community engagement. So it took us a while, about a year and a half, before we hired almost two years really before we hired a formal community manager. Um, but other than that, it was really just we had you know some customer service, uh, you know customer success success folks that were helping us out. Um, but that's a key part too. You need to filter out you know low and high quality. If you see duplicate content, things like that, um, critical in order to make sure we're maximizing the opportunity to engage and whether it's attractive for someone who has exited you know, a $20 million, uh, you know, sale of a business or someone who is just thinking about launching a business, but you can clearly see through their, their thought process that they share, they've got something really cool on their mind. Um, and they need some validation around it. Was there a price point discussion that you guys had with that as well? Cause I think for the price, it's almost irresponsible for people not to join. <laughs> Shameless plug. Yes, it is irresponsible. Uh, you know what we, when I, again, when I joined, uh, Sam had run, conducted a number of, of tests. Um, and we also continued to, to conduct tests around payment, uh, or the price and the trial and things like that. Um, but there's, a, there are a lot of restrictions around it. Um, for example, DC, you're not allowed, you're no longer allowed to do 30 day, uh, trials. It's too long. Right. Um, so in terms of the price point itself, um, we did kind of, tinker around with the thought of raising that to say, you know, a thousand dollars or maybe creating an uh, entry level and then a la carte um, kind of model. Um, but within, you know, once we uh, post acquisition, we kind of froze all of those changes until we were acquired by HubSpot. Um, and we're still kind of revisiting, you know, those conversations. Um, I think what we want to do is make sure that it is affordable for folks mm -hmm. to get in and be able to engage. Um, and 299, you know, $299, uh, us it's not it's not a large amount but it's enough to make you think twice right yeah. and i think that's the part where it is a reasonable enough number but i tend to agree with you with the caliber of folks that we have inside that community um it it, it is has been long discussed internally if we should be bumping up the price and then maybe grandfather folks into the original price things yeah, like that and i'm not sure if you should bump it up i i really just think it is more of just the exposure that'll continue i don't even think you've hit your inflection point with it because for a thousand i'd be like oh, i don't know but like for 299 right. i'm like yeah what the hell so like just keep going the other thing i've noticed with your community is very different and then i want to transition over to your that kind of covid um stage that you had to go through and then the acquisition with hubspot yeah, the, the, the one thing I've noticed with the community that's really intriguing, I guess this might be a shameless plug because there's no question attached to it, but when your community manager says no to a post, 
they tend to come back and say, but if you tweaked it in this way, then we can let you post it. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Cause any other community, they're just like, nope, they, you know, we disallowed your post. We disallowed your post. That's a really, so whoever your community manager is like just huge props to them. Cause I think it's really intriguing. Cause what it does, it doesn't turn you away. It educates you and it brings, it sucks you back in going, Oh, okay. You actually do like my idea. It's really cool. Totally. Yeah. And that's, that was a long time coming. I think for a while, uh, when we, when we hit like 5,000, like, Oh, wow. We have a lot of people in this group, uh, this is getting big and now we're up to 14,000. And so, um, you know, the, the biggest thing is providing super valuable feedback to folks on how they can tweak it. Cause we don't want to, we don't want to shy people away from contributing or trying to, you know, get involved with the conversations. Um, it's more or less, it's just important for, for us to provide a direction and let them know why. Um, sometimes we get stuff that is just flat out, uh, you know, this, come on, you know, why we're, why we're, why we're right. Those, those are the easy out. ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buy my, buy my new crypto course. Yeah. But that's yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay, you got Steven Seagal behind this or I don't know about this one. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, so let's talk about the, and the only question I really have about COVID because I think it's kind of been overplayed, but you said you made the decision to close down. Was it your Bay area office and keep the Austin office open? We did. Yeah. That was a, that was a tough conversation because that office um, really served as a bit of an incubator. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of shared learnings. We had folks um, kind of friends of friends, founders that were coming in. We had a children's vitamin startup in there. Uh, another guy who was coming in, he's, he had a media startup too. Um, we had, you know, another startup we had in there was a, a ramen startup. Um, so we had all these different, you know, really cool eclectic kind of products that people were launching, um, you know, former, you know, product managers from various companies. Um, but besides that, uh, looking at our internal team, it had really gotten to a point where we had about like four to five core individuals going in each day. And some of them were commuting from Cupertino elsewhere. So we're talking about like an hour, hour and a half, two hours sometimes each ridiculous. way. It was ridiculous. And so I really saw the opportunity once we went fully remote, um, you know, once we went fully remote and we were successful for the first 90 days in that capacity, um, that's when I sort of flagged it. Sam reached out and said, Hey, what do you think we should do? Should we keep this office? Should we keep it going? Or should we, you know, should we maybe, should we maybe power it down? I knew deep down Sam um, wanted to keep it. I knew he really enjoyed having that office and having the ability for, uh, for our investors and friends of friends and friends of our investors um, alike uh, to all come in and, and share that office. But we decided the biggest thing was like, we could be taking that and then reinvesting it in a number of areas, employee perks. Uh, we could be reinvesting that in potential growth. I know exactly what we could do with that extra $15,000 a month. Um, so those were some of the things that we talked about. And I think knowing that we still had an office down in Austin, Texas, yeah. um, left us feeling okay. Um, but that was a tough call. I mean, I think anytime you're, you're powering down an office, especially the, the hustle started in San Francisco. So to lose that core base, um, it felt a little weird at first, a little uncomfortable, but I think over time, um, I think a lot of companies are going to become more comfortable with having this sort of hybrid or, uh, fully remote kind of, uh, model. Well, and, and let's face it. I mean, the Bay area is now in Austin. Like it's just basically yeah. like, it's like a huge, <laughs> it's like they built the first hyperloop one directional from San Francisco to Austin. And everybody's like, zoom, it's just being sucked over. That is so true. It is um, so true. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Okay. So, so. And then you made the decision to go remote. Let's talk about, about HubSpot. I mean, 
Um, I've spoken at their conference a couple of times, uh, amazing organization, but massive organization. And when did you first get get the, when did you first know, when did Sam talk to you? Cause I mean, clearly he was talking to them before everybody else was how, how long and how did that discussion go when Sam told you or. Yeah, he reached out in, um, in fall of 2020 and said, Hey, I think it was around late September, October. Uh, and he just said, Hey, um, I had an interesting inbound, um, this, this, this week or, or last week. And I said, well, you know, who was it? He said, well, I can't tell you, uh, I can't tell you right now. Cause nothing's in stone, nothing's in stone, but what do you, what do you think about us getting acquired by a SaaS company, a publicly traded SaaS company? And I said, well, that's a little unconventional uh, to say in the least, because you're looking at other acquisitions in the marketplace and you're looking at folks being acquired by larger media brands um, to kind of expand their offerings. Um, and that was one of the, the kind of the key differentiators with our acquisition was uh, the excitement around potentially starting a movement around having media own media in-house. Um, as a SaaS company, as opposed to just focusing on, uh, you know, conducting third, you know, advertising on third-party placements um, and platforms and things like that. So that was what kind of kicked things off. And over time, um, I think the more that we started to work through the due diligence, and I really uh, appreciated all the questions and the the way that it was being handled, um, it just, it was a really good experience. I think for for a lot of folks, it it just was... um, but became, did the discussion when Sam told you, did you panic? Were you okay with it? Were you like, what, what rolls through your head? Um, I was excited. I think a lot of folks aspire to go through that type of experience in their career, um, even just once. Yeah. Um, so, so for me personally, I was really excited about the opportunity. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, calm headed. I'm the type I like to kind of lay out you know, your options on the table and then discuss them openly. And I think in this case, I was 100%, I can say with confidence that I was uh, more attracted to this type of opportunity of, of an acquisition, kind of an unconventional opportunity uh, to go in and then bring our value to the table for a company of that size and caliber. Um, it was really, really humbling. Um, it was a really humbling experience to kind of to have that conversation with Sam around that. So yeah, my immediate instinct was like, this is awesome. Uh, this is, this could be super cool. What was it like going through the actual acquisition process? Was that, did that start getting distracting? Was it a bit of a pain in the ass? Was it easy? Yeah. A uh, little bit of everything. Uh, depends on the line of questioning. Um, I think if you ask Sam around um, some of the questions around finance, things like that, uh, we have a wonderful head of finance who uh, did a, just an awesome job of cleaning up our books going into our acquisition. And so that put us in a really good spot. Our team was in a really good spot um, at that point, um, kind of serving as head of product and growth. I had a team, I think, of uh, of twelve total uh, with some middle management, and you know, in that capacity, we were able to kind of tap in some folks to the inner circle um, and bring them in to kind of help us collect, collect and gather uh, information that was required through the process. Um, and everybody kind of stayed kind of, you know, stayed uh, mom about it in terms of the public view. And then we were able to kind of get together and work on stuff. Um, we did have tight timelines at times. That was really challenging, um, especially going into the holidays um, around, you know, late December, early January. That's when 
push was coming to shove and we really needed to get these final questions put together, that's when we had to get a little bit more in the data, build some charts, build reporting around, um, you know, our trajectory and how things have been going and um, revealing, you know, a little bit more underneath the, the different layers. So, yeah, I think overall, it, I think everyone um, who was kind of tapped to participate in that, um, I think did a wonderful job, honestly. And I think they got a lot of the answers in a very timely manner. So I think it was overall pretty smooth. So that part happens and, and then all of a sudden it's like the integration and you tell the marketplace. I mean, the market was clearly excited. It was like, wow, um, and amazing. And it made sense too. Like it, it just intuitively all of a sudden made sense. What was it like when, when you started to kind of integrate with them and how did that process go? Yeah. So we were assigned, um, they have an MBA leadership program. Uh, and so we were assigned a, an individual from that program. They had HubSpot had gone through one acquisition prior. It was an analytics company. Um, besides that, for in terms of their, in terms of like their, you know, the true hubs on top of their CRM, um, that is their bread and butter. Uh, that is their competitive advantage is the fact that they haven't actually acquired a lot of third parties and, and, and melded them all together um, and tried to, you know, connect these code bases. Yeah. Um, they have one solidary, you know, code base across everything and it's all interconnected, which was what makes it such a beautiful product. Um, and so for us, like, you know, working with, uh, this one key individual, we were able to then, you know, I was tapped, um, to kind of lead a lot of the, uh, olive branch over to the different teams that we were going to be integrating with and the folks we would be working with. Um, so I kind of found myself in a position where, you know, first of all, it was getting everyone over the finish line in terms of kind of revisiting comp packages and revisiting all those types of things, which those can be difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and arguably the most important because our team is, is everything. Um, our team is everything. And so we wanted to make sure everybody was really happy going through that process. Uh, but once we got everybody through at that point, I kind of, uh, I became really the go-to in a lot of cases for um, procedure, operations, um, going, helping, trying to navigate uh, our vendors that we work with through security and compliance reviews because they're publicly traded. You know, now we're talking CCPA, GDPR, all the fun stuff. Um, so we were just trying to get all these things through the final stages. Um, and candidly, it took us about six months. Uh, we did a we did a retrospect actually on the entire experience. Um, uh, the the individual who had led it uh, that uh, you know within the HubSpot side. Um, and it was a very, it was a super well thought out and detailed um, retrospect. And I think if we ever go through some form of acquisition again, I would look to that document and say, this was spot on. These are the things that I would have done differently. Um, okay. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool though. Was, um, was the transition, did they make any cuts in your organization? Did they like cut any areas or cut any key people? And, and how did you guys manage that with the, the survivors? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the difficult parts of this acquisition was sunsetting our, our advertising sales. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we, we did have to, you know, we did have to make a decision. Those folks were extending an opportunity to interview with HubSpot. So they tried to create a path forward for them within HubSpot or, um, take some type of, you know, severance. And so the options were kind of laid out for folks. They were given some time to think it over. Um, and then, so some, you know, most folks ended up taking off. Um, and, and in fact, some of them are running their own advertising sales agency focused on newsletter revenue um, on, on third-party placements right now. Um, and then, but, but overall, uh, we did retain a couple of key folks, um, at, you know, in, during, the, during the first, you know, 90 days within HubSpot, 
we had to power down and, and honor our commitments. Um, and then, so we, we kept our head of sales uh, on and he was able to really lead those through. And then our, what's really cool is, and I think this is something I, I'm, uh, uh, one of the, the folks, Alex Cunningham, she's done such an awesome job. She basically steered the ship and tried to, and led our account management through our final advertising commitments and then, and then segued over. And she is now essentially the head of account management for HubSpot. Cause right. Cause we're now using it's, it's exclusively, um, our advertising placements are exclusively HubSpot. So she has essentially transferred over and made, you know, them, her number one client to, you know, in a certain sense. Um, so that's, what's really cool is um, we were I'm able sorry, to, all, did you say that all of your ad placements now are exclusively HubSpot? Yeah. Or cross promotions. Um, wow. So, so we completely powered it down. So yeah, wow. we're talking, we're talking. I mean, I, um, I did notice that on the podcast that it was HubSpot, but I didn't recognize that it was only then. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we powered down, you know, um, you know eight figures of ad sales and, decided that was the direction we were going to move in. And ultimately, um, really the, the purpose, you know, looking ahead is again, is to kind of honor this mission of inspiring and educating professionals. And, um, you know, you may know this, but obviously there's certification program, the HubSpot Academy. Um, when you bring all this to, to light, it's, it's education, right. Mm-hmm. And it's inspiration and giving people the keys to excel, um, and leverage their, 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 uh, CRM. And so, yeah, that was one of the things that we ended up doing though was was kind of moving our our ad sales um, you know in a different direction, just exclude kind of honoring HubSpot exclusively. Wow. Uh, we still we still get a lot of inbound requests. I'll be honest, I you know through LinkedIn or elsewhere, I'm like, how did you even find this form? I thought I buried that. Um, I think people just are, you know, when you look at the landscape right now, it's really expensive to advertise on channels like Facebook and Google and elsewhere. The, the, the cost keeps rising. So they're looking for other alternatives to reach a really highly qualified audience. Yeah. Um, and, and newsletters are, are just that. So um, I think, well, yeah, I, I think it's a really good match for HubSpot though. Well, you're, you're welcome to introduce them for us, for the CO Alliance and for the Second in Command podcast. They can sponsor both and, and we're looking for good ones. So that'd be Cool. Happy. I will do that. I Did will you, do that. Were you guys involved in the, the podcast launch, the HubSpot podcast um, platform? Are you guys running that or are you partnering with them? How does that work? Great question. So we have, uh, it's a bit of a split uh, role. So Sam, I support Sam in a lot of capacities, more around budget, things like that for uh, supporting the My First Million podcast. My First Million is now part of the Hub, uh, Hub, HubSpot podcast network. Um, so that's what's really neat is like, it's going to be an assortment and a collection and each one has a target audience and, um, you know, trying to create some decision framework around what to launch next and, and is it what audience are we appealing to? Um, those are all really cool decisions that we have to make, but we did hire... Uh, HubSpot hired a an executive producer. They're going to sit within a HubSpot team, um, the content team, and then also uh, we've hired um, we're hiring a senior podcast uh, marketer, and so that person's going to really be in charge of kind of organic paid opportunities, um, booking guests, uh, a number of different capacities um, to kind of help play in in the success. Um, but yeah, it's it's a kind of a, a broad vision at the moment. We're really trying to tighten that up and define it by type. Um, and what is our goal for each one and things like that. But it is, we're, we're, we have a bit of a, um, we're definitely going through planning phases right now to, to see what's next and how the hustle can add value. 
Interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting stage for it, for sure. All right. I want to go back to the 22 year old Scott. If we go back to the just graduating college or you're just getting started in your career, what advice would you give yourself as a 21, 22 year old that you maybe you know it to be true today, but you wish you'd known when you were much younger? Yeah, I think um, my my biggest piece of advice to 22 year old Scott would be if it if a position or a company doesn't sit right with you and it doesn't feel like you're learning or enough or you're feeling complacent in that in that role or there's lack of clear vision and strategy from the top down or there you know there lacks a top down bottom up formulation of of goals um trust your gut and move on to the next opportunity uh, where you're going to be able to provide more value and where you're going to get more uh, better oversight and direction um, and, and kind of meet that meet halfway on those things. Because um, I can just tell you, looking back, those were some, and I think we can all agree, leaving a company and moving on to the next opportunity is one of the toughest decisions that you can make as a young you know, professional. And um, just trust your gut. Uh, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't sit right, it doesn't feel good, then um, then move along and find that that next opportunity that'll that'll be a great stepping stone for you. I love that. Well, you've you've made another great leap with this acquisition by HubSpot. You're part of a great organization. Scott Nixon, the marketing director for the Hustle. Thank you so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. You bet. Thank you so much, Cameron. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.